Best Book Bits podcast brings you an extraordinary 79-year-old entrepreneur woman, Maria Nemeth, coach, business owner, speaker, and teacher that has been working with people for over 53 years, first as a licensed clinical psychologist, and then a master certified coach with ICF. She's the founder and director of the Academy for Coaching Excellence and the author of three books, one of which entitled The Energy of Money, which brought Maria to the Oprah show. She has two podcast shows and a coaching app. She's devoted to elevating women, entrepreneurs, and coaches to have successful businesses. Maria, thanks for being on the show. Oh, I am so thrilled, Michael. Thank you for having me on the show today. Your legacy and the amount of work that you've done is is overwhelming. Take us back not too long ago, three weeks, your 79th birthday, where you're riding a camel in Egypt that you just told me the story. Can you share your latest birthday with us? Oh, I would love to do it for our listeners. I know that you have a goal or a dream you'd love to accomplish. My advice to you is make it happen. If you have to save money for it, put it in a savings account marked just for that goal or dream. I saved up money so that I could go on a journey with um, 24 other people. It was from UCLA. I'm an I'm an, an alumna from UCLA, graduate, and we were with Egyptologists. And I was in Egypt, and then I went to Jordan to see Petra. You know that Indiana Jones. It was just of a lifetime. And there, I was telling you, going on to my 79th birthday, on a camel in front of the Great Pyramid of Cheops in Giza, Egypt, and. Michael, when you have a dream and then it's there, it changed, it changed me. And I'll tell you, let me, may I tell you how it changed me just in a bottom line? I was able to go to the, the Valley of the Kings. I was able to take a balloon ride over it to see the whole thing. I was able to go to Karnak and Abu Simbel, all the places. And what just gobsmacked me. Michael, was to be in the presence of 7,000 years of genius and creativity and people doing something so that they could live forever in the hereafter. And then I saw my little life, my just like blip of a life against 7,000 years. And it just occurred to me, the time we have here, Michael, what is it for? And at that moment I saw it's for, so that we can dance with each other, so that we can contribute with each other, so that we can have fun and support other people to attain their goals and dreams. And the bottom line for me was, Maria, just don't take yourself so seriously. Just don't take yourself, those little thoughts we have, our worries, our doubts, and our fears. When I put that against 7,000 years of history, <laughs> <laughs> doesn't mean very much so that's it quite humbling it it's nice to see you're still traveling still learning still thinking still exploring that that's great now take us back to take us back to how you started 53 years ago how did you get involved in this field and how did your story unfold 53 years ago i was a licensed clinical psychologist and i was seeing people in psychotherapy and uh, something happened it was about 35 years ago so i've been seeing people for 15 years 35 oh my <laughs> 40 years ago now i loaned someone 
$35,000 on an unsecured promissory note, Michael, which isn't worth the paper it's printed on. And my friends and colleagues and relatives have said, don't do this because the man, oh, I borrowed it at 10.5% from an in-law because this man said he could earn me 32% on my investment. Does that sound too good to be true? It was. But I didn't listen to my friends. I didn't even listen to my own voice of wisdom inside. That small, sweet little voice. Everybody has one. If you're listening in now, you know what I'm talking about. And just as I was about to sign my check for 35 and 00, zero over $100,000 with a little line so he couldn't cash it for more because <laughs> I was not a fool. <laughs> this little voice, what do you think it was saying to me, Michael? Yeah, and I did it anyway. I lost the money. I was ashamed. I withdrew from my friends and started trying to earn back the money I owed before anyone would speak to me. I was so mortified. If you run from your lessons, you know they follow you. Yes? And I get a call from a reporter from the Sacramento Bee. It's the newspaper here in Sacramento. She says, Dr. Nemeth, and of course, I got my very professional voice on. Yes, may I help you? You know how we get that voice. She said, oh, Dr. Nemeth, thank you. I, We've been having so much trouble in Sacramento, and I've been given your name because you're a noted psychologist and an associate clinical professor at UC Davis, Department of Psychiatry. Please, you have to help us. There's been a Ponzi scheme in Sacramento, and people have been losing everywhere from twenty to $50,000 on this. Can you really tell us from your experience as a psychologist, your diagnosis, what's wrong with these people? <laughs> and of course, she was talking about me too. Now, I'm an extrovert, and in order for us extroverts to know what we're thinking, we have to say it out loud. And so I started telling her everything. I lost the money. I didn't listen to my friends. I, and she did at some point say, are you sure you want to tell us this? Because I'm printing it. And I said, you know what? You might as well print my story. Because if someone can get something out of what I did, if it'll help them, then at least it'll take some of the sting out of it for me. So she printed it. Dr. Nemeth, well-known psychologist, gets stung by this deal. And my friends and colleagues and relatives started calling me Mark, Michael. And the thing about it was, instead of asking me, why did you do it? And, you know, what's wrong with you and all that? They started telling me about their difficulties with money. And I saw it didn't matter how much or little people have, Michael. It doesn't matter how much or little of this energy of money you have. There's always some difficulty attached to it. So I started a course called You and Money, and it was wildly successful, and I changed it to Mastering Life's Energies because there's the energy of money. It is energy. 
but there are five other energies that we learn to use. There's time, physical vitality, creativity, enjoyment, and relationship. But of all those six forms of energy, the one we have to learn how to use first is money. And that's been part of my journey. Thanks for sharing. And when did you do that course? How long ago was that? And then what came from that? Oh, thank you for asking. I'm glad you're interested. I started that course maybe 34 years ago, and I was still seeing people in my private practice. But at some point, right around there, I became interested in something called coaching, which, as you know, 30, even 30 years ago, no one really saw it as a profession. We had voice coaches and athletic coaches, but we didn't have personal coaches success coaches. And I began studying with some people who were talking about coaching and I began coaching people. And I saw that was more suited to my temperament. So I worked with people after working with them, I began to develop some success techniques that I tried it out on people. And I keep telling those folks, 25, 30 years ago, that they were my guinea pigs because <laughs> I tried the things that worked and, and scuttled the things that didn't work. But the bottom line is that about 22, about 23 years ago, I came up with this fairly solid grouping of tools and principles and techniques that are geared toward making people become successful in whatever they choose in life. And some colleagues talked with me, why don't we open up a coach training academy using your work? And so we did 22 years ago. And we were one of the first in, and I made sure that we had certification from ICF because being an academician myself and knowing Michael, if my listeners come away in this podcast with nothing, I hope they just get this one thing. Coaching is just as powerful as psychotherapy. With coaching, you're holding a person's life, their goals and dreams in your hand. And how their life turns out will be due in no small measure to the way you supported them. Now, why I'm saying that? because I've become a real staunch advocate of rigorous training for coaches. Not this two weekend, Michael, if you were going to be going to a psychotherapist and you ask, where did you get their training, your training? And they said to you, I took a two weekend course and I have life experience that qualifies me. Would you choose them as a therapist? No. And I say that coaches should be held to the same scrutiny because of how powerful it is. So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Just a personal note as well. So I've always wanted to be a coach myself. I started reading books, I've read about 500 books to write my first book, Success in 50 Steps, which is basically my coaching manual through there, but did the hard work, did read the books, did the courses, all that stuff as well. And coaching people from a passion, not from a monetary thing. So anyway, I went to a coaching seminar about four or five years ago 
And the coach was basically saying, look, the coaching area at the moment is the Wild West. It's not regulated. Obviously, the internet, a lot of people get into it, do marketing, call themselves the coach. And I was really jaded by a lot of people getting into the industry without having a, doing the hard work or the background or the certifications as well. And a lot of these coaches are certifying people on their program. And it's like, hang on a sec, they're not even certified. So it's just this weird, join my five day free group. And then all of a sudden you can be certified doing this and marketing. There's just a lot of people in it just for the money where it's, as you said before, it's such a powerful tool to help someone else. You really need to be not only certified, but have the correct knowledge or the come from the right heart instead of the head. A lot of people come in from it to make money. Instead, it's actually you've got to be there to serve someone else. So they're yeah, really jaded on the coaching industry at the moment. But what led you to develop the Mastery of Life coaching program? That it took a while. My colleagues and I, and of course, in order to run the academy, I had to have my master coach certification <clears throat> through ICF because, Michael, I wanted everything to be verified through in the International Coach Federation is the closest we have come to what the American Psychological Association was, let's say, 50 years ago. It's not a licensing body, but it does certify that if you get certified through a program like ours and like others that are accredited that you've been well trained and it's recognized throughout the world so if you have an icf certification you're an acc or a pcc it's really good and what we've done is we have courses they're now done on webinars on zoom because because of the pandemic, we had to pivot and put everything on Zoom. But you have skill building webinars, you have mentors who work with you personally twice a month, you have skills groups in which you meet with small groups in the presence of one of my master teachers. And for 12 weeks, you go through this intensive skill building training. I mean, you have an ethics course the ethics of coaching. I also have a, of a course that I've designed because I used to do a lot of crisis intervention as a psychologist. And I want my coaches to recognize when the client they're working with is in crisis. And so when to coach them and when to refer them. And so I have a working with people in crisis, working with clients in crisis course is called. So as you can see, oh, and we have six observed coaching sessions that the person has to pass at different levels. And once they have passed their sixth level, and this is reviewed by our mentors and scored, but once they pass that and take our written test, then they're certified. And only then, because I want to make sure that if you have the Academy for Coaching Excellence brand, that you are going to deliver services above and beyond, frankly, what is currently called for. And so you're absolutely right, 100% right, Michael. You can only really be a good coach if you want to see people be successful above everything else.
And when you are trained well and can be counted on to provide a good service, then you can afford to have fees that reflect your training and your certification. But just to be in it, just to make money, one of the things that happens is that the coach will become cynical and skeptical themselves because they sense they don't have the proper training to work with the person that's in front of them. Once again, knowing that as a coach, Michael, you and I, everyone who coaches, you're holding that client's life, their goals and dreams in your hands. And how you promote them, how you support them, will determine how successful they are and then how successful you are. And there's nothing better than to know as a coach you've had a hand in having your client be financially successful, um, personally successful in whatever they're doing. It's a, to me, it's a thrill. And I'm 79 years old. As you can tell, I love it. I'll probably be doing it till I'm 99 years old. Listen, I had a clinical supervisor when I was at UCLA. Her name was Hedda Bolgar. And she was from Vienna, do you know? She was from Vienna and she talked to me. She said one day, Maria, if one of your patients says you look like a monkey, first look in the mirror. You might look like a monkey. And she was supervising people till she was 98. I definitely think you can do it. I want to change gears a little bit and talk about the energy of money as well. One of the, one of the books that you've wrote, I've done the summary of it, it's fantastic. You talk about the money, it's similar to the relationship with money as the hero's journey as well. Can you talk a little bit about that and how money's related to the hero's journey? I have a saying that has proven correct over the years that how you do money is how you do life. If you're, if you're successful with money, if you're using it in the way you want to be using it, it impacts your whole life. It impacts your, as I said, there's first there's money and then the energy of time and money and time, aren't they really intricately woven together? Many years ago, when I asked someone, why haven't you done what it is you love to do, the first thing they'd say is, I don't have the money. But over the past five years, especially, when I ask someone, why is it that you haven't done what you really want to do? The first thing is, I don't have the time. So there's money and time. And if you can work with those, then there's physical vitality meaning having a relationship with your body that guarantees you're going to be on this planet long enough to make the difference you want to make. And then, of course, there is the energy of creativity, which is to learn how to creatively deal with the inevitable obstacles that happen. The energy of enjoyment means what you enjoy doing. And I hope people are getting this little tidbit for themselves, whatever you enjoy doing, you will be successful at. And then finally, the energy of relationship, which means that we all need each other, 
Michael. I need you. You need me. I'm in a support network. I know you are too. Successful people don't think do things alone. They do it through the support and relationships, the rich relationships that they developed. But it all starts with money. One of the first things I did, God, it was 26 years ago, I wrote this book in which I kind of brain dumped everything that I had learned working with people and their relationship with money. And there are exercises in the book and there are thought exercises as well as written ones. But the bottom line is that book is very, I'll say it this way, is very densely written. Meaning, you know, how people might say, oh, I'll finish off a chapter tonight. I'll finish off a chapter. No, usually people can get through the first five pages and then they stop and think a little bit and then go back. It's really good to do this book in a, in a book group so that you can support each other in doing the thought exercises and the actual physical exercises that you need to do. So the bottom line is, uh, my, one of my dreams is to show people how to transform their relationship with money so that they can become very successful. And I have a way of defining success, I think, that might be different than a lot of people. We use it at the Academy. Success, Michael, is doing what you said you would do consistently with clarity, focus, ease, and grace. Where clarity is about learning how to see what's important to you. And a lot of this work is aimed at having people see what they really value in their hearts. Focus is about learning how to focus your brain toward what you really love without getting distracted. And you know how easy it is for us to be distracted. Ease is about learning how to take small sweet steps toward a goal, not biting off more than you can chew and then getting exhausted. That old fable about the tortoise and the hare and the tortoise actually ends up winning. That's one of Aesop's fables. It's true. Steady progress is what really makes it, not the flash in the pan. Yes, stick with me and I'll, you'll be taking in $300,000 a year. Just take this program, all that stuff. It's just not, it's not practical. It's not doable. Then the last one, so that's ease, ease. Then the last one is grace. And the definition of grace is the ability to see the blessings that are around you already. And the gateway to grace is gratitude. Success then is doing what you said you would do consistently with clarity, focus, ease, and grace. And being financially successful is doing what you said you would do consistently with money, with clarity, focus, ease, and grace. And by that definition, I've discovered, and as you can imagine, over the past 52 years, I've worked with one or two people, right? One or two, right? I've discovered that just because a person has millions of dollars doesn't mean that they're financially successful because they worry about it. They worry about losing it. They're worrying about how to keep up the momentum, 
when they're exhausted. And also by that definition, people who have less money, but they're doing exactly what they want to be doing with it. They're saving it. They're focusing. They're taking small, sweet steps when it comes to money. For example, I remember one woman who said, okay, I'm going to save $50 a month and I'm going to put it in an investment portfolio. She said, I've never even heard of an investment portfolio. <laughs> but at the end of a year, she had $600 and she put it in an investment portfolio and she was elated and decided to spend, save $100 a month. And at the end of the second year, she had $1,200 in another investment portfolio. But the point of it is this, Michael, she was absolutely motivated and ended up starting a virtual assistant business. And now she's socking away quite a bit of money for herself and her children. And they're using it with clarity, focus, ease, and grace, as well as investing it. But she doesn't have money worries anymore. So that's what I'm talking about. And thanks for letting me give you these long answers. Appreciate it. It reminded me of the Bible story of the poor widow who gave two pennies. And the plain truth is that the widow had given by far the largest offering today because all the offers that she made, they'll never miss. She gave extraordinary because she couldn't afford it. She gave it all. So she, even though it was only a small amount, but it was everything that that she had i hear what you're saying so i had this thought as well so people with money if you're not at ease with it you're stressing about it worrying about it are you really financially successful where someone who might not have a lot of it their ease small sweet steps as you said consistency they're focused they've got gratitude it's not the amount it's it's really just a ratio as well so it's how money impacts your energy, your happiness, your lifestyle as well. So I'll be interested to, to jam on that a little bit more. One of the things that you talk about you and the money course begins, the first question we look at is how we confront our unconscious beliefs and feelings about money. Is that the first step with a lot of people that, because obviously we've been brought up in an economic society and money is a lock that unlocks things. Talk about people's unconscious beliefs and feelings about money. One of the best ways, whatever you can bring to the surface and observe how it's been operating in your life. I don't mean analyzing, like why is it this way? But to really observe your relationship with money, it's a very important thing. And so one of the things that I have people do, whether it's in my book, The Energy of Money, or in courses. We, at the academy, we have lots of courses for people who don't necessarily want to be coaches, but they want to transform their lives. One of the best things to begin to do is a money autobiography. And in my book, as you, there are a number of questions that I ask people write about. Things like, where did you first learn about money? How did your mom act around money? How did your father act around money? No, no whys. I don't want analysis. And if we had two hours, I'd talk to you about how analysis 
doesn't really get us anywhere, but that's a whole other story. What was the first money you earned? What did you spend it on? Have you ever lost money? What was that like? Have you ever put money toward a savings for something you want? What was that like? There's so many questions. Did your family talk about money at the dinner table? Where, where did you learn about spending money? Did you learn it from your mom or your dad? Just all these questions, because I'm just giving you a couple. There's this, this whole list. You don't have to answer all of them, but what you do is you uncover a, a way of thinking about money that you hadn't seen before. You might have thought it, but you didn't really see it, observe it. Oh, and I ask you to give a title to the money autobiography. And some people come up with very funny titles. My extraordinary relationship without money <laughs> or something just that, or they come up with serious titles, but that's the way to surface all this stuff. You don't have to go through a lot of analysis or anything. Just answer. Even when people answer, let's say, uh, six or eight of those questions, ideally answering 10 to 12 of them is the best, but answering six or eight of them will give you something that I call your structure of knowing about money. Whereas meaning the kind of created network of conclusions that you have that interrelate with each other. And just to see it, is already life-changing. And I don't ask people to analyze it, but just look at, first of all, acknowledge themselves for doing this job because it it's a lot to have people look at their relationship with money. And after they observe it, what conclusions are you coming to about your relationship with money? And write them down. And then there are things I have you do with those conclusions that have arisen because you've done this money autobiography. So that's the first way I have people look at what they knew but didn't know they knew <laughs> about money. One of the other things you talk about, thanks for sharing, that's really great. You talk about breathing room as well, asking people, do I have enough money? Ask the question to yourself three or four times. Where does your body register a reaction? Your stomach, your chest, your throat. Breathing room occurs the moment you get into what you call the observational position as well. Can you talk about breathing room? Some people might not have a lot of money, but they're quite, they, they've got that breathing room of, oh, okay, I've got enough money for X amount of time. And some people might be rich and they feel like they've got no money and there's no breathing room or no wiggle room. Can you expand on that a little bit? You know what? You just, you just said it all. <laughs> Brilliant, because that's exactly what, that's what happens. Yeah, the, what I was saying, that you observe this, um, this money autobiography, creating the observational gap means that you see something, you're not analyzing it, you're just noticing it, like you would notice a patch of flowers. There's brightness here, there's darkness here, there's worry here, there's calm here. Let me see about this brightness. What makes it bright? I'm 
talked about the times that I was winning with money and how great it made me feel. Let's look at the darkness. What's in there? Oh, for me, the time I lost $35,000 on an unsecured promissory note. But you're just noticing. And it puts your mind in a different state where it's not tied to the old patterns. It's observing the patterns. I know it's a sometimes a difficult distinction to comprehend cognitively without having that experience where you're seeing something that you hadn't seen before, but you see it in such a way that you're empowered to do something. Not the same thing over and over and over. You know how our minds do a lot of analysis. And you've heard that old saying, analysis paralysis. If people stop for a moment and observe, excuse me, if people just stop for a moment and observe what they're experiencing, for example, as they look at their money autobiography, I remember one woman saying to me, I've looked at the dark spaces, all the times I've worried about money, et cetera, et cetera. And I asked myself, Sylvia, have you had enough of doing it this way? I saw this stuff happening over and over again, but because I was in the observational position, I could ask myself really authentically, have I had enough worrying? Have I had enough dreading money? Have I had enough running from it? Is there maybe some other way I'd like to establish a relationship with money? And then you see you're on your hero's journey right then. And this relates into what you talk about in the book, Trouble at the Border as well. So projecting our life's intentions into physical reality. So, you know, we have that, we begin to move from idea from the metaphysical realm into the physical reality. And you cross that border between the very two different worlds as well. So internally, we might have a great idea and we're like, this is, this is great. It's perfect. Everything works out in our dreams. And then trouble at the border of crossing that chasm. Can you talk a little bit about trouble at the border? I would love to. And Michael, let me say that since over the past 25 years, since writing that book, for example, uh, I have reconceptualized what trouble at the border really means. And one of the reasons is because in our world right now, there's so much trouble at border crossings, real in life. And 35 years ago, when I started talking about it, it was trouble at the border. It was but now people, they don't relate to it in the same way. What I really saw was this. What happens when you get to this border? Because there is an imaginary line, folks, that separates two aspects of life as we've come to know it. There's one metaphysical, sometimes people call it visionary reality. And then there's physical reality. Now, when you start putting that idea, dream, or vision into physical reality, you start experiencing a lot of difficulty. It's normal. I remember one man said, when I first started writing my book, even sitting at the page, <laughs> typing that first paragraph of the book, 
It felt like I was standing on a sunny beach, all of a sudden being hit by a cold wave of water, a huge cold wave. Now, I said to myself, what's really going on here? That experience of tension, of worry and doubt, am I up for this? Number one, it's what every hero experiences on their hero's journey. Joseph Campbell, who wrote eloquently on the hero's journey and who was the mentor for George Lucas. George Lucas said, if it weren't for Joseph Campbell, Star Wars would probably never have gotten off the drawing board. But to get back to this, part of the hero's journey is to confront the inevitable obstacles. They're inevitable. You're always gonna have obstacles. I say, if there are no obstacles, you're not playing big enough. There'll always be an obstacle. The question is, what is this op an opportunity for? And it's an opportunity for mastery. So that's what I call it now, an opportunity for mastery. And what are we mastering? There, we can learn a number of ways of going past this place with ease. And I've developed those strategies over the years. And whether you're reading The Energy of Money or incidentally, I have, and this is new, I have a digital course called The Energy of Money, which is based a bit on the book, but I give people a lot of extra things to do. And it's me on video and, and you have all kinds of book, booklets to write things. And it also comes with three coaching sessions from me. I have three group coaching sessions. And so you can do that, or you could uh, just read the book, The Energy of Money, or you can come to one of the courses at the Academy for Coaching Excellence. I'm doing a plug here, but there are tools that you can use to go past this border experience. And once you do, you experience that you've mastered this. Mastery is your ability to interact in a productive way with any obstacle you experience at this point of mastery. One of the things that you talk about in the book, which interrelates with this, so you talk about the four steps of the coaching model, look and see. They're more metaphysical things because looking and seeing happens with the eyes inside. And then you talk about tell the truth. And this is you authentically telling the truth. So step three, but the last one, which is take authentic action. That's the bridge. That's the action of crossing the chasm or crossing the border between the metaphysical and the physical. Can you expand on how important it is to take authentic action and what you mean by authentic? Yes. Authentic action. Oh, thank you for asking me these questions. I love it. Authentic action is there are two kinds in the coaching paradigm that I've developed. And remember, I'm talking to you really about a coaching paradigm as we're talking about this. The first kind of authentic action is designed to clear away any unfinished business. So for example, you might, out of an exercise that you've done, you might look and see and tell the truth that you have not gone through 
your credit card bill. You've paid it, but you haven't gone through it in three or four months to actually see what it is you're buying and whether or not you're going over the top with some of your expenses. That would be authentic action, the first type A. Type B authentic action is actually going toward a dream, which is, for example, I want to have, you might say to yourself, I want to have more vacations, but I want to have the kind where I don't have a huge credit card to pay off at the end. So I'm going to begin a vacation savings account and I'm going to put one or $200 in it every month. I'll have, there's, there are the kinds where the bank automatically deducts and puts it in that account. And in most cases, you never feel it really. Just don't. There may be times when you say, Ooh, I need to stop spending so much. But for the most part, people report to me, if you keep it low enough, you don't experience, but at the end of a year, let's say if you put a couple hundred dollars away every month, you have $2,400. That's begins to be at least the beginning down payment here in the US for a short cruise. You have to pay maybe a thousand dollars more, but you have the money. And so you're not going into debt, big debt, because no one likes to be on vacation where you sense that you're going to have to confront a huge credit card bill at the end. That's no fun. So that would be type two or type B authentic action. Was that clear? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I want to talk about some of the inner blocks that's in people from taking the action. They might get to the point where they plan, they set goals, and then life gets in the way, and then they're dealing with these fears, they're just dealing with these inner blocks to progress. Can you expand on some of the inner blocks to progress that stop people from achieving their harmony with energy with money? Oh, of course, the inner blocks, I have codified a name for it, which is a Buddhist name called monkey mind, which is that aspect of our brain, of our mind that's always chattering at us as it swings from doubt to worry and back to doubt again. The bottom line, two bottom lines, actually, monkey mind is inevitable when you're going from metaphysical to physical reality. It's inevitable. And we all have our symptoms, our private symptoms. And I've listed possible systems, symptoms of monkey mind. It's in the book. It's, it's in my digital course, all, you know, because I want people to become familiar with all the, it's really called a negativity bias, which is the tendency of our brain to look for what could go wrong before what could go right. And I know we don't have three hours together. Let me just say that uh, this aspect of the brain is probably due to the fact that our brain has not changed, Michael, in a hundred thousand years. We have the same brain. And a hundred thousand years ago, the first thing we wanted to know when we left a cave, for instance, going for food, the first thing our brain looked for was the predator. Because if we didn't look for a predator first, we could be eaten before we got our breakfast. 
So those who stayed alive are those who had this mechanism in the brain. And you and I, people who are alive today, we have inherited this anxious brain, this monkey mind brain. But, and so there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with your brain. It's just built in. That's the first lesson. And the minute you can see what it is. Oh, right now I'm doing a comparison. I'm comparing myself with Jim over here and how many clients he has. Comparison. The minute you can observe it, don't analyze it, but observe it. If you can see it, you don't have to be it. And so you become aware. That's it. Yeah, excellent. Thanks for sharing. And just to shorten the other ones, well, you talk about dancing with the monkey mind. You talk about forgiveness, building strengths to dance with your goals as well, staying on the course. There's so much great stuff in the book, and I'll let people I'll let people go out and buy it as well. But yeah, I think it's probably a good time to put a bookmark in it. Where can people find out more about yourself? Or do you hang out on social media, Maria, as well? Where can they buy your books, do your courses? And yeah, I know you've got the podcast as well. If you want to talk about that too. The bottom line is this. I would suggest you visit acecoachtraining.com to see about the Academy Foundational Training, which is this course for anyone. You don't have to be a coach, but if you want to transform your life, my guarantee is that you will in this course. If you want, I have a weekly newsletter and you can get it by going to marianemoth.com and simply click that you want the newsletter and I'd be honored to send it to you. It's something that you can read in about three minutes. I want to leave people with something they can grab hold of on a weekly basis. Or you can go to energyofmoney.com and look at this wonderful digital course. So that's it. Yeah, I'm on the website at the moment. Fantastic. You've got a lot of great stuff there. The Energy of Money podcast too and the Coach Training podcast. Are they still active as well? That's it. Maria, thank you for being a great guest on the Best Book Bits podcast. And to my audience out there, yeah, check out your stuff. What's the story with Oprah? Did you did she get the book or were you on the show or... Yeah, she got the book and, and Amy Coleman, who was working with it at the time, called me one day out of the blue and said, we got your book. We love it. We've read it. We want you to be on the show in 72 hours and working with a mother and her two daughters. And of course I said, all right. Of course, my heart's going like this, but 72 hours later, there I was on the show and she held up my book and we talked about it and I talked about this mother and her two daughters that I had worked with the day before so that they could be on the program. And it was wonderful. She hugged me and I do have a dream. Here it is 26 years later to possibly be on her Soul Sunday, Soul Sunday club. Yeah, I would love to be interviewed by her 25 years later. It just would be a ball, but who knows? We'll see. Absolutely. No, awesome. That's pretty cool. Thanks for sharing that story. Yeah, but again, thanks for being a guest. Uh, thanks for all the work you've done over the decades as well. And, and thank you for shining the light on people's paths as well and all the things you've done in the coaching world too. Yeah, to my audience, please uh, check out Maria's stuff and you enjoy the rest of your day and we'll speak soon. Okay. And Michael, I just want to say before we hang up, you are an excellent interviewer. It's been my honor and privilege to be with you today. So thank you very much. Thank you, Maria. Privilege is all mine. Thank you.